The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. Later in the show, Congressman Jim McGovern on what his office is doing to aid farms in his district that were decimated by floods earlier this week. And we'll talk with Peter Langmore of the Glasgowland Scottish Festival happening Saturday at Look Park in Florence. But we begin with Rachel Maddow and Isaac Davy Aronson. Isaac is a supervising producer at MSNBC and co-hosts the podcast Rachel Maddow Presents Deja News. And Rachel Maddow is Rachel Maddow. <laughs> who hosts The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC, now only on Monday nights, and who has just released four episodes from her third podcast series through MSNBC. Congratulations on your sort of freedom. Each episode of Deja News asks if there is a historical antecedent to something we might be reading about under today's headlines and says without quite saying, if we don't learn from these lessons, are we doomed to repeat them? Rachel's first chart-topping podcast, Bagman, about the downfall of Vice President Spiro Agnew, spurred a best-selling book and an upcoming feature film directed by Ben Stiller. And her second chart-topping podcast, Ultra, was a look at a plot to undermine American democracy and spread Nazi propaganda in the U.S. 80 years ago. That podcast was picked up by Steven Spielberg for a potential feature film adaptation. As many listeners know, Rachel got her broadcast start right here in Western Mass, first at the now pop-countrified WRNX, and then for two years as the host of The Big Breakfast on WRSI, where we met, and I was lucky enough to work with you for two years. Thank you for joining us, Rachel Maddow and Isaac. Thank you so much for having us. Was it only two years that we overlapped? I feel like it was a whole lifetime. It it was a whole (laughs) lifetime and a whole lifetime ago. Are you trying to tell me something? (laughs) Yes. See, that's why our show's only been on for like five months and it already feels like a lifetime. But yeah, no, it was. I mean, I mean it in a good way. I just mean it was so transformative. Transformative. <laughs> oh no, I, man, I, I'm getting it wrong. Like, I wish I, we could put our I, conversation we were having before on the air. Now I wish that I could would get be video of that backpedal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was two years and twenty years ago. Really, is what it comes down to. Yeah, but it, literally, we're so old. God, I know it's crazy. <laughs> and of course, I I used to joke when I took over the morning show that um you know. I am here hosting the mornings on WRSI, and Rachel Maddow has gone on to relative obscurity. And that (laughs) relative obscurity includes Emmys and Grammys and Peabody Awards. And and Isaac, you have been working with Rachel for the remainder of the time that I was not working with Rachel. You basically are the bald man who picked up where I left off. Tell us about where your journey with Rachel Maddow began. Yeah, well, we first met in 2004 at Air America Radio, which is where Rachel went after she was working with you at the the river. I helped you make and the tape, remember, to send to Air America Radio? I love that. That's right. My 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 reel. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Which helped me get a job there as a newscaster, Yeah, which was my first job. And then I got, I got uh, promoted from newscaster. Isaac and I were both newscasters, weren't we? No, I was your Didn't news we? assistant. Oh, you were my news assistant. Yeah. And then did you become a newscaster when I became a host? No, I became news assistant to the great Wayne Gilman, who was another newscaster that they oh, that they brought legend. on. But Rachel, yeah. you yeah. became yeah. you became a host before Air America even launched. You went there to be a news reader, essentially. <laughs> and before that network even launched, you're like, oh, this person is a little bit more adept and smarter than our average <laughs> news reader. Maybe they should have their own show. And then you were there with Chuck D and Liz Winstead. That was a that was a great, a great time. That is a brilliant revisionist history of how it Come on, that is <laughs> yeah. what happened, is not? Is it not? No, 
And Isaac, I think you were in the room for this. What happened was there was another lineup of hosts that was set to have a show. And it turns out they didn't get along. Ah, and one of them right. decided that they were the alpha host and fired the Omega host. Who <laughs> oh. They thought they were co-equal. They apparently were not. And so the fired host just evaporated in a pool of smoke or in a puff of smoke. And it was literally the, the remaining host looking around the room seeing who else had ever <laughs> spoken into a microphone professionally before and was like, you, you, you over there, what is your name? You will, tr you will be the host. We'll try you. And that's how I got the job that ended and up I, being the And I remember being game. bereft because well, we had just started working <laughs> working together. I was your news assistant. It was going so well. And then all of a sudden you were gone. And I was like, wait, that was fun. That was that was really going well. Everyone leaves me. <laughs> but you brought Isaac but along for the ride yeah, these last yeah. 20 years, right? So tell us about um, that. You went to work with MSNBC with Rachel as well, right, Isaac? Well, I uh, I first worked, continued working at Air America for uh, a couple of years, and and so Rachel and I were kind of working parallel. We weren't working directly together, but um, uh, she had this after that show where she replaced the host who evaporated. Mm. Uh, she had this five a.m. solo show, and she was uh, magnanimous enough to have me guest host that show when she wasn't there. <laughs> And it remains to this day like the earliest I've ever gotten up for anything. Like it's just it's a crazy it's a crazy time to do a show, <laughs> and uh, and and that's how we worked together. And then I had a a decade long uh, sojourn in public media. I was at WNYC for a long time, and then Rachel brought me into MSNBC almost uh, almost a decade ago now. Kalise is laughing because when I would be off on vacation during the morning show on 93.9 The River, Kalise would have to get up really early and fill in for me. And now she's here with me. So it's like the cycle continues. And that ties in very nicely to Deja News, because you may think that these are new things that are happening right now, but they actually have parallels in history. And there's four episodes of Rachel Maddow presents Deja News out now, except for the one bonus episode of Bagman. Each more harrowing than the last. Yeah. Honestly. And what I love about about Bagman and Ultra is um, they're terrifying in their own ways, but they, uh, they're a historical deep dive. So, Isaac, I'm going to read like a synopsis of the episode and people who are listening are going to fill in the blank of what they think this is about from contemporary headlines. But you fill in the blank about what the episode is actually about. Episode one, a violent right wing mob interrupts lawmakers formalizing the transfer of power to a new leader. But this isn't Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021. But rather, it is February 6, 1934, in Paris, France, uh -huh. when a fascist mob uh, attacks the parliament there to interrupt the transfer of the peaceful transfer of power uh, to a new leader. And the, uh, the sort of uh, the, the, the hitch, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. The hitch there is that uh, in 1934, it actually works uh -huh. and the government, uh, the peaceful transfer of power doesn't happen. Uh, so that's a really fascinating one. Khalees, you want to do episode two? Florida lawmakers previously tried going after the NAACP, suspected communists, and gay people in Florida schools and universities. It's not Ron DeSantis, but... But it is Charlie Johns, who was the state Senate president in Florida in the 50s and 60s, and was arguably the most powerful politician at the time, who ran this committee that went after uh, gay people and alleged gay people in universities and schools on the... Uh, sort of uh, argument that they were infiltrating and corrupting the schools and our kids. Florida has been not saying gay for quite some time. 
Uh Yeah, seriously. Uh Episode three, Republicans claim the election was stolen. They use those claims to justify suppressing people's right to vote, all of it happening amid a national reckoning on race. But this episode takes a look at not recent election, but an election in what era? In the 1960s, uh, we look at uh, the election of 1964 in which the uh, Republicans launched something called Operation Eagle Eye, which is masquerading as a voter fraud, anti-voter fraud effort, but is, of course, in fact, a voter suppression effort. And they justify this by saying that the 1960 election was stolen by the Democrats. And (laughs) the episode that I just listened to, a new president with authoritarian tendencies packs the nation's highest court, which then outlaws abortion. Except this is not last year in the U.S., but... Just a few years ago in Poland, one of the fascinating things about doing this episode is that it's very recent, recent history. This just happened in the last few years in Poland when they got their own sort of right-wing authoritarian president uh, who packed the uh, packed the nation's courts and then had those courts outlaw abortion. And the protest movement that has evolved in response to that has really remade the country's politics in Poland. So it's a really interesting parallel that's actually evolving alongside our own political moment. By the way, I didn't know that this was going to be like a quiz. Yeah, well, I mean, this I'm is a like, quiz that you better know the what? answers to. I mean, you've done Seriously. a lot You're of a... thorough research well, into these track. podcasts. Yes. 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 Needs improvement. You got a hundred, Isaac. That's great. Isaac, Uh, Davey Aronson, and Rachel Maddow from Rachel Maddow Presents Deja News, the new podcast, the third in this series that Rachel has been producing. Uh, Bagman, as I mentioned before, was fantastic. That's going to be a movie. Uh, The Ultra, which is chilling, is also likely to be a movie. Um, And this episode four, in particular with the abortion issue in Poland, And the outcry of the Polish people compared to the outcry of people in the United States was what was striking to me. People took to the streets en masse after this abortion decision in Poland. They also took to the streets en masse after the election of Trump for a short period of time. I expected Northampton to be burned to the ground when Uh Roe versus Mm. Wade was overturned. But I was surprised at how lack there was a lack of people in the streets. There have been pushbacks in regards to, to votes in, di- in different states. And the overall pulse of the nation seems to be that this is not the direction that most voters want to go. But were you surprised, Rachel, that there wasn't more pushback when Roe versus Wade was overturned in the country here compared to Poland and especially in Western Mass? You know, it's a, it's a really good question. I think it's still sort of an open verdict in terms of what the response is going to be, because we have in our you know, federalist, federalized system, um, what we lost is the federal protection for abortion rights. And so now individual states are all one by one making their own decisions about it. And so we're seeing different levels of um, direct action, protest activity, uh, depending, I think, state to state on on what's happening. But I also, I also do feel like it's sort of not yet written. It, it definitely feels like an evolving thing. And the thing that did surprise me, and it's probably just because I'm a bad pundit and I'm very bad at predicting things, but um, the the nationwide, even deep red state electoral backlash um, where people just are, are turning off Republican elected, the prospect of, of Republican elected officials winning and, and they're losing every ballot initiative on this issue. The voting response to it has been much more homogenous and strong than I expected. And the the street protest thing is, I, I sort of feel like it's um, depending on where you are and depending on what's going on. 
But like like your podcast says, actually, the the voter response kind of parallels what happened in Poland a lot more than I think yeah. our in the street response does, and that's encouraging. Well, it's I mean, it's it's interesting. It opens up whole new avenues in terms of how abortion politics might evolve. I mean, you listen to somebody like Nancy Mace, for example, Republican congresswoman who herself is anti-abortion, but who is telling her fellow Republicans like we can't keep legislating on this the way that we are in such direct contravention to the will of the people who we have to answer to. We're going to lose elections in every state at every level continuously if we keep pushing this. And as that starts to sink in for Republicans that they're doing something really deeply unpopular, it's going to change the overall perception and viability of the Republican Party. But it's also it also may change Republicans short to medium term treatment of this issue. I mean, we'll see the 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 voter backlash against it is very loud um, in terms of electoral consequences, I think. I, you know, I would also add that when one of the guests we spoke to for that, the, the Poland abortion episode, uh, pointed out that the protests in Poland, as uh, remarkable as they are, and as much as they have remade politics in that country, the protests themselves, she was telling us, um, won't won't accomplish their goal unless they have an effect on politics, right? Unless yeah. they result in having a putting a government in place that will roll this ban back, that will make changes. And you know, Poland has an election coming up this fall, and we'll see how it goes. So there is this sense that maybe there hasn't been the same amount of uh, on the street protest in the United States as there has been in Poland. But if the political landscape is changing in the U.S., then um, the the effect is still being had. Right. Yeah. We're speaking with MSNBC's Rachel Maddow and Isaac Davey Aronson, who co-host a podcast called Deja News. Episode four of six was just released this Monday. We're going to take a little break. And Rachel, this isn't like when we did commercial radio. We're like four minutes we got to wait. We just have to wait for like one minute. And then oh, we, wow. And then we come back and we start talking more and we'll talk more about the state of journalism, a little bit more about Western Mass. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Do you recognize that music, Rachel Maddow? No, because I can't hear it. Oh. That's the theme music for The Big Breakfast with Rachel Maddow on 93.9 River. (laughs) I saved everything. I've got all your old reels. I've got all our old interactions. He's got everything from everywhere. He pulled out this recording from like ages ago for a piece we did a couple of days ago on a Monday which regard which referenced somebody who lived in Franklin County and he had recordings of her and used clips of them in the show They're fr- how old was that recording it was probably 10 15 years yeah, old exactly but I'm no archivist like the archivists who work for Deja News the new podcast from MSNBC's Rachel Maddow and Isaac. nice segue very nice he's good at this um you're listening to the fabulous 413 on NEPM I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. And it's interesting because Rachel went from radio to become a huge television star and podcasts are kind of like radio. And that is yeah. back to where you're at. Is this where <laughs> is this where you feel more comfortable in, in this sort of setting rather than being on television? Is it nicer because there's no cameras? I hate being on camera. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, you're sort of you're sort of getting me in the soft underbelly right right away. It's very <laughs> a little incisive for my taste. Couldn't we do something a little gauzier? Um, yes. It is a. I think that, um, and Isaac can speak to this. As a TV host, I am a particularly non visually inclined TV host. For example, I wear the same thing every day, and that's not not hyperbole. And I've had the same haircut since I was 26. I'm now 50. <laughs> so there's not a lot going on in terms of like decorating the screen, if you know what I mean. Um, and it's only getting worse over time. But also when it comes to explaining something or, or, or telling a story, particularly something if it's got like a lot of expository work to be done where you really have to walk people through something that they don't necessarily already have a grasp of, I don't think in terms of visual aids. Like we, we, we produce visual elements and put them on TV, whether it's, you know, B-roll, or videos or, or 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 full screen graphics or whatever it is, but I just ah uh, it doesn't feel like my first language. I really think in terms of script and words, and so I both miss radio, which I think is why I love podcasts, but I also think it's kind of more I, I'm kind of better at it um, than I am at TV. It, it's harder and to me more satisfying. I'm wondering if, you know, your show was famous for doing like a 20 minute deep dive at the beginning of the show that often was mm -hmm. very, very historical. Is it, you know, too nerdy for TV to do that sort of thing? And podcasts are really the perfect venue because, you know, this this podcast, Bagman, Ultra, all of them have been deep dive history podcasts. I've had people argue that to me, particularly since Deja News came out saying, oh, podcasts are the perfect venue for Rachel to do this sort of thing, because obviously you can't do this sort of thing on TV. And I'm thinking, well, I've been doing this on TV for 15 years. <laughs> it's, been, it's been going okay. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I mean, every once in a while, certainly, I, I think watching the Rachel Maddow show on MSNBC, it's, you know, it really appeals to some people. It doesn't appeal to other people. And, and if, if you don't like a long story that involves a lot of context and often a lot of history, then probably, you know, you're watching QVC instead or whatever. Um, but if if you do like that, if that form of storytelling works for you, I think we've made it work on TV. And I just that's just it's the way that I learn. And so therefore, it's the way that I like to explain things. And I think it works in both, hopefully. OK, we got a couple of questions from our listeners, which is very, very kind. We had Sarah Rankin ask she imagines that, I'm assuming pronouns and sorry, Sarah, she imagines that being recognizable and so beloved makes going to public places a different experience than it used to be. What, if anything, do you miss doing in Western Mass that used to be a favorite part of your routine? Or what would you like to check out that's opened since you became a public figure and had to go into hiding? <laughs> I had to go into hiding. Uh, I have not gone into hiding. I am, however, painfully introverted. <laughs> and so um, I have I'm always been one a of person. <laughs> yes, I, I'm not a misanthrope. I really like people. Um, I just can't handle a lot of human energy. And that has been true for my whole life. That's not just about um, people knowing what I look like from TV. But I will also say um, that when I go on TV, I put on my little uniform, which is my you know, $11 blazer and the little black shirt that I wear underneath it. And I take off my glasses and I put on my contact lenses that I can wear for one hour before my <laughs> eyes start to itch. And it's like, it is a little suit, you know, it's a little costume that I put on. And when I take that off and remove, you know, mascara, I don't look that much like myself on TV. And so I kind of, I, I mean, I think I still kind of look like a pot-bellied 27-year-old 
boy um, on TV. And so unless you know that's what I look like on TV, you won't necessarily stop me on the street. So that's not the, con so the constraint is not like famousness. The constraint is um, that I'm afraid of people. This is a listener question that might be good for both Isaac and Rachel. Michael Lynch wants to know how, as a journalist, do you cope with people like politicians that say things that are blatantly false? And he cites as an example Chuck Todd sputtering alternative facts at Kellyanne Conway. It seems as a journalistic ethics have hindered reporters from saying that is a blatant lie. Do you feel like you have the capacity to, to call someone out, a politician, right away in your different platforms of journalism to say that's just an out and out lie? Isaac? Isaac, you go you go first. Well, um, gosh, that that is a it's a hard one. I mean, I think that one of the things that I've really appreciated about working with Rachel and working on the Rachel Maddow show is that one uh, is that there are a couple of uh, sort of uh, rules that we have lived by that Rachel has set on, on the show. Uh, and one of them is that we you know we don't put anything on TV or anyone on TV uh, that we don't think will uh, enhance the, uh, the the lives of our viewers, right? Essentially, that won't add to their understanding of the world, right? So just because someone said it doesn't mean it needs to be on TV. And the other thing, and I think this is, Rachel, I think this is my favorite one of yours, is um, we don't play requests, right? <laughs> and that if if someone's out there saying what, you know, may be a lie or spinning something in a certain way, or they're, or they're just being um, ridiculous, in order to get attention and want everyone to pay attention to them, right? Um, we've, we're sort of allergic to paying attention to people who want to be paid attention to because we want as much as possible to try to, you know, tell our own stories and set our own narrative. And the best stories are always the people who don't want you to pay attention to them. Those are always, <laughs> that's always where the more, uh, more substantive story is. Um, yeah, I think that's right. We want to increase the amount of useful information in the world. And that does not mean inviting people onto the air who you cannot trust or who are um, spewing bullpucky. Um, and we don't have people on the air formatically to fight with each other. Oh, have a kinetic interaction that is dramatically interesting, regardless of the truth of what you're saying. Like, we just don't play that game. And we don't play requests. I think that's, we don't play requests. I think that's right. We don't, um, give people airtime because they say they want it or because they're acting like they ought to get it. It's, you have to ex exert your own independent view. I, I think a lot of attention to the, to the question specifically, there's a lot of attention as to whether or not something can be described as a lie. There's no rule about that. I mean, the only rule that we have in terms of, you know, standards and, and, and the right way to do this job is that we tell, we tell the truth and, um, and we, don't, um, we don't let lies stand without being challenged. We're speaking with MSNBC's Rachel Maddow and Isaac Davey Aronson, who have a new podcast out called Rachel Maddow Presents Deja News. Four of six episodes are out. All of them seem to tilt more towards the fact that Republicans have done these things and <laughs> other fascists have done these things in the past. Might we see an episode of Deja News that would be like, hey, the liberals or the Democrats did this terrible bad thing. And here is the uh, comparable analog to today. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> or as Colbert says, does the, the truth have a well-known liberal bias? In this case, what we're talking about is here's some bad stuff going on in the world. Don't worry, America. We have dealt with it before or somebody else has dealt with it before and we can learn from it. So bad stuff. I wouldn't necessarily say like because we're talking about things that are different time frames in different countries. I feel like the... Um, 
the the ideological slots don't always have the same uh, labels on them as they do when we're thinking about our contemporaneous politics. But it's definitely bad stuff that happened before um, in other places and how people dealt with it. But there's also, you know, I mean, for example, the um, one that's episode five that's coming up. The the for me the big parallel in episode five. It's definitely a bad thing that happened that has a historical antecedent. But the most compelling part of episode five, which is about to come out on Monday, is the kind of the good guys, um, that there was a reaction by people that was protective and humane and brave. Um, and it's that is something that we are also seeing in our current politics. And those people have historical antecedents, too. So we get good guys and bad guys from history, for sure. Look for the helpers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, We've mm-hmm. I've had a great time talking with you again, my Even old friend. Even if we didn't get to ask you what your current favorite cocktail was. Oh yeah, Rachel's a big cocktail fan. Before we let you go, what's your what are you drinking right now? You know what I'm drinking right now is non-alcoholic beer because now I'm 50 and every time I have a drink I'm up for three days. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Good for you, but also oh. Athletic? Have you tried that? <laughs> Athletic is a good Oh, yeah. Athletic I love athletic. All, you know what? All, non-alcoholic beer has gotten so much better. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It's fantastic. I'm the only person who stopped drinking and gained weight because all I do is drink non-alcoholic beer. And it's like <laughs> eating loaves of bread all day long. And, you know, the non-alcoholic cocktails are, are not too yeah. shabby these yes. days either. Yes. It's true, actually. The I will highly recommend there's one that comes, the pre-bottled ones. Like Some of the pre-bottled ones are way too sweet. Yes. The phony Negroni is magnificent. Okay. Yes, exactly. Seed I'm Lip's entire line yeah. is really lovely. Seed Lip. Okay. Yes, it's true. It's very true. Yeah. It's very Anyway, so if you're now old and you're fighting the menopause and your menopause doesn't let you drink anymore without keeping you awake for three days, check out the non-alcoholic uh, spirits and cocktail world and beer world. You'll be happy you did. MSNBC's Rachel Maddow and Isaac Davey Aronson, the new podcast is called Rachel Maddow Presents Deja News. It's out every Monday. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Thanks Rachel, for, for your health, help you. in launching this show when it started yes, back in you. February. <laughs> means a lot Absolutely. to me, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Up next, Congressman Jim McGovern on what his office is doing to aid farms in his district that were decimated by floods earlier this week. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPN. Time for our weekly conversation with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Congressman Jim McGovern. McGovern,ing with McGovern. We were supposed to have the governor on yesterday, but she flew into parts of your district, Congressman, and then took a helicopter out of it to assess the flood damage from this week. And you, historically, have gone on farm tours looking at and hearing from the farmers about where they struggle, what help the federal government can offer them. What is your office doing and the federal government able to do to help these farmers affected by these floods this week? Yeah, well, we're going to do whatever we can to provide uh, relief and to figure out, one, the extent of the damage, uh, the cost, um, and whether this is something that not only MEMA, but FEMA on the federal level can help uh, uh, mitigate. We're talking to people at USDA as well, because a lot of farms have been impacted. We're trying to find out who has crop insurance, who doesn't, and what it is we need to do. But look, this is serious. And um, I've been talking to our state legislative delegation. I had a long conversation yesterday with Senator Joe Cumberford, who's also been out uh, on the ground looking at uh, the damage firsthand. I've talked to town managers and, and mayors, and you know, we're trying to figure out again where the various buckets of uh, money to help may lie and identify them. But we're trying to get a full understanding of the extent of the damage, and it's, it's, it's pretty severe. 
and working with Senator Warren and Senator Markey as well uh, to make sure that we're doing everything on the federal level uh, to provide relief. I was speaking with Senator Joe Comerford, State Senator Joe Comerford, yesterday while we were at Grow Food Northampton, and she explained to me how it works with FEMA, that there needs to be a certain threshold hit before federal emergency management money comes in. There was an ecological disaster of sorts for farmers a few years back where it did not trigger FEMA dollars. Right. And you did mention the USDA could be involved in this. Let's say the damage is not extensive enough for FEMA to be involved. What would or could USDA do to help with these farmers in their situations? Because, you know, it's it's been devastating to hear about how many people have lost how much of their crop. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are lots of programs in USDA to aid farmers. And, um, you know, some of it can be directly related to crop damage as a result of, of disasters. Again, we're trying to figure out who's eligible for what. But we are talking to USDA. They're trying to assess the extent of the of the damage as well. I mean, you know, how many farms have been adversely impacted? I mean, it's not just farms, businesses, personal property, all kinds of stuff have been have been impacted. But they're in the loop. And I think everybody who needs to be in the loop is in the loop. We're trying to figure out what's the damage, what's the cost, and who has money that can respond. Is it worthwhile if you're a farmer and you're listening to this and you really don't know what to do to reach out to your office or is this a wait and see situation? Is there any help no, that I mean, could be happening immediately? Yeah, no, I mean, people, I, I mean, I encourage people to reach out to my office, you know, and, and to, to, to let us know what you're dealing with. I mean, we're in D.C., right now because we're we're in session this week uh, my hope is to be able to go out and look at some of the uh, damage over the weekend but uh, please reach out and we can tell you what we're doing we could tell you whatever town or city you may be in we can tell you who we're working with but make sure that we know what what the challenges are that you're, you're facing right now we want to be helpful We usually keep things to the 413 in our conversation here with Congressman Jim McGovern, McGoverning with McGovern. But since, you know, all politics is local, even the global politics, Ukraine and NATO have been in the news quite a bit this week. We actually had Irida Kaktiranova, who uh, fled Putin's Russia 20 years ago, who you were involved in her case. She lived in sanctuary in a church in Northampton. She looking at the issue from both sides, saying it's terrible that this war is happening. And you made a comment about cluster munitions. That was a story late last week, early this week, about the Biden administration's decision to put these scattershot bombs that are notorious for killing civilians. You stood up against the Biden administration saying that we should not be sending cluster munitions. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I've had legislation for for several years now to ban cluster munitions. These should not be utilized in war, period. When they drop these munitions, these little bomblets kind of go in all different directions. Some explode, some don't explode. Those that don't explode are there forever. Even long after a conflict, children, civilians, you know, come upon them, drive over them, and they explode and they, they people die. They get maimed. They, they die. You know, most of our NATO allies have banned these weapons. Uh, many of them have urged the Biden administration not to send these weapons to Ukraine. Sadly, Russia uses them, uh, which is a horrible thing, but Putin does horrible things all the time. But, you know, we are now, by sending these weapons, joining with rogue nations like Syria and Saudi Arabia uh, and, uh, and utilizing these weapons. And I, I don't think that that's the right thing to do. We, we, we need to support the Ukrainians, in my opinion, because being uh, bombarded by Russian ag- aggression. But we also need to not lose our our moral compass in this and utilize weapons that everybody knows are are weapons that really should never be utilized to begin with. The argument that they're giving is that we don't have enough other weapons in our our stockpile. But I would just respond by saying, you know, there was a huge alliance 
that is dedicated to helping Ukraine repel Russian aggression, surely uh, some of these other countries can step up and provide alternatives. But this is going to happen. And I think what we need to do is work harder to get into law a total ban. Uh, we, we had an amendment um, that I, I offered to the defense authorization bill uh, that would say the United States cannot transport these weapons anywhere. Sadly, last night at two o'clock in the morning, uh, the Republicans decided to take this amendment and change it so that they're saying, oh, you can only, you can only not give these weapons to Ukraine, implying you give them anywhere in any other country in the world. Uh, and they've given the amendment to Marjorie Taylor Greene. So just it's frustrating that here in Congress, we're not going to have the kind of debate on this on the merits of these weapons. I mean, it's interesting to see, Congressman McGovern, how people have reacted to this statement about cluster munitions on your social media. Some uh, very, what seem to be empathetic, liberal-minded people saying, how can you tie the hands of the Ukrainian people for fighting for their freedom by saying you don't want them to have these weapons? Other, even maybe more liberal-minded people saying, why are we helping them with weapons at all? Isn't all war bad? Is I mean, how do you thread the needle of this type of bomb to kill people is good. This type of bomb to kill people is bad. Why these weapons in particular? Well, these are particularly indiscriminate, and these are particularly lethal to civilian populations. That's why we're working toward trying to ban them, period. And, you know, to those who are you tying their hands, if Ukraine wanted mustard gas, should we you know, give them mustard gas? If they wanted to use they want nuclear weapons, should we give them nuclear weapons? I mean, come on. I mean, the, the deal is, is that you can be supportive of the effort uh, to support Ukraine in combating Russian aggression, uh, but not be in favor of using weapons that, quite frankly, I think are immoral to begin with. But we ought to lead the world, uh, not only in banning cluster munitions, we ought to sign the treaty uh, that bans landmines, and we ought to also lead the world in an effort to uh, abolish nuclear weapons. I mean, that's, I've got legislation that would, would do that. As we see the horrors of this war, let us work harder to make sure that there are no other wars and let us work harder to try to get some of these particularly gruesome weapons banned permanently. Speaking with Congressman Jim McGovern, McGoverning with McGovern, it was slightly disconcerting, if not more than slightly, for me to see this week the conversations about NATO and Ukraine and Sweden, where rather than working with Russia as much as possible to work on a diplomatic solution, are we poking the bear by saying, okay, Sweden's on the road to being part of NATO and Ukraine is on the road to being part of NATO. This is kind of what Russia has been afraid of all along. Rather than taking a beat, waiting until the conflict is more over before, you know, where cooler heads can prevail, when we're not sending cluster munitions over there, is this a time to be having these conversations with NATO about allowing Ukraine into NATO and other nations into NATO while Putin is on a tear and invading other countries? Are we on the precipice of provoking a global war? Well, we're, we're not the ones urging Sweden to join NATO or Finland to join NATO or, you know, um, and in fact, Biden has even kind of put the, the brakes on Ukraine joining NATO, saying that it's not ready yet. And certainly if Ukraine were to join NATO right at this moment, that would mean that we would all, uh, all the NATO countries, including the United States, would be immediately at war with Russia. But the bottom line is that countries like Sweden um, and Finland before, um, and now Ukraine, who's now has been invaded by, by Russia, are scared. Putin, unfortunately for him, uh, if his goal was to, you know, is to try to get countries not to join NATO, his invasion of Ukraine has resulted in more and more countries wanting to join NATO. They feel they have to. 
because if they don't, they will not be protected and he will come next. I think Biden is smart by slow walking the Ukraine membership in NATO. Uh, but to those who say, we don't want to upset Vladimir Putin anymore, then, you know, the best thing he could do <laughs> is to stop this. Uh, Ukraine is not the bad guy here. Sweden and Finland are not the bad guys who wanted to join NATO. When I was over there with Nancy Pelosi a year ago, I met with the, the president of Poland. I mean, the president of Poland is seriously worried that if Putin is successful in Ukraine, that Poland is next. There, there is a real fear for people on the ground in the region about what, what might happen next. So we need to find a way to bring this to a conclusion and we need to find a way to end it in a way where we can be relatively certain we're not going to see a recurrence of it in any other countries in the region. But uh, these countries are joining NATO because they're afraid, not because the administration is quietly urging them to join. Uh, I support any diplomatic efforts to try to bring this to an end. And um, I understand that, uh, you know, that. You know, the, the way this ends is not by humiliating uh, Russia before the global community, but Putin has to stop this. One political question in regards to the elections coming up. Do you think Jamie Raskin, who helped to lead some of the Trump impeachment on the House side and who you brought through Northampton for a big event, brought through the station uh, that I previously worked for, do you think he should have decided to run for Senate? No, I talked I, I talked to him um a couple of weeks ago about this. I talked to him when he made the announcement. I had a nice conversation with him yesterday. He made the right decision for his, himself, his family, um, and also for where he could have influence. I mean, if we take the House back, he'll be the chairman of the Oversight Committee here in the, uh, in the Congress, which is a pretty powerful position, and um, he'll be able to pursue the issues that he cares deeply about. If he ran for Senate and won, he'd be a freshman senator, uh, and you know, have to wait until he's 120 before he gets a <laughs> you know, subcommittee chairmanship. So, so I think he made the right decision. He went through a, a challenging time with his health mm-hmm. and he battled with cancer and, um, he's doing well. Everything came, everything's looks good. And, um, you know, and I think he's decided that rather than spend the next year, um, you know, raising $50 million, you know, to run for Senate, uh, you know, that he can do the most good for Maryland and for the country being where he is right now. So, I'm a huge fan. He's an incredible leader in our Congress, and uh, I'm glad he's going to be staying in the House, selfishly, because mm-hmm. I like working with him. But um, he's going to continue to make incredible contributions uh, for the betterment of this country. U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's own Congressman Jim McGovern, talks with us weekly. You can always send your questions for the Congressman, the Fab 413 at NEPM.org, or text them 800 639 9120. Thanks as always, Congressman. All the best. Be safe. Bye. Up next, we'll talk kilts and cabers with Peter Langmore of the Glasgow Land Scottish Festival happening this Saturday at Look Park in Florence. You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Woo! Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. This weekend, you'll have 12 hours to party like a Highlander. I thought there could only be one. That's if you're the Highlander, oh, not a Highlander. I got it. Definite articles are important. The Glasgow Land Scottish Festival returns to Look Park in Northampton on Saturday with games, food, music, and more so you can get your reel on. What's a reel? A reel is a dance. Oh, with us to talk more about what you can enjoy at the Glasgow Land Scottish Festival is Peter Langmore. Peter, you've been involved. First of all, we should say NEPM is a sponsor of the festival. We ran into each other at our Asparagus Festival. But this is a huge, fun, 
Scottish festival happening at Look Park this Saturday. And Scottish festivals are festivals are really cool. Yeah, I had a good friend who was a drummer in a, in a pipe and drum band, and like they'd go all over the world playing, and there will be no shortage of them at this festival. <laughs> but, 29 pipe bands. Wow. That translates to something between 550 and 600 pipers and drummers. That's, That's just the pipers and drummers. That's not the people that are going to be coming in. Or like the bands that are coming. Yeah. There are bands in addition to the, right. the, the drum and fife folks that are coming to this. Do you get them all to play at the same time, like yes. UMass Band Day? Yes. Uh, they all march in at opening ceremonies, which are at 11 o'clock, uh-huh. 11 a.m. They all march in together. To Scotland the Brave, because everybody knows that one? Yes, or? yes. Nice. <laughs> uh, and then Counter March. Uh-huh. What does that mean? Like they, m- they, they march between each other. Okay. Yes. Wow. Uh, it's amazing. Plus, you know, about 100 solo pipers and drummers. If you go to that park in the morning and you hear the piping, uh, there's like to look park, the f- fog is just coming off the ground, and you hear the sound of the pipes in the woods. It's amazing. If you thought the neighbors of Florence were cranky about Bombix, wait till 500 <laughs> bagpipes show up on Saturday morning. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like this is maybe the most beautiful, wonderful, brilliant counter protest that anybody could have accidentally assembled. <laughs> now, uh, Peter Langmore, you're not officially the founder of this festival that's been going on for, what, 22 years or something like that? This is the 28th year. 28 Whoa. years. But uh, you were there from the beginning. Yes, Tell us I about w- the origins of this festival. The reason for the beginning of this festival was uh, Blanford is was known as Glasgow Lands. We have the uh, historic white church up there, which has its own programming, and um, the whitechurch.org. Um, they needed money to restore the church. Can I stop you right there? Why was Blanford called Glasgow Lands? Was there just a big Scottish population there? or they, uh, So the Scots came over uh, f- uh, through Ulster uh-huh. uh, and... Uh, that's why. I, I have to read about it on Monty. <laughs> oh, don't worry. Uh, it, it, and anyway, so we were there five years. Out, it was supposed to be a one-year festival. We outgrew that. Uh, then we went to uh, uh, Stanley Park, Westfield, five years, outgrew that. And now we're at Look Park. We will not move. It, so we rent the park for the day, the whole park. Um, it's the only day, actually, that the park is closed to, their, to the um, public. Uh, well, it's not closed to the public, to their pass holders. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. We charge our own admission, which is $25 at the gate, $22 in advance at glasgowlands.org. Um, and, uh, you know, we, it's so the reason, so it, it, it was so successful the first year that it kept going and going. Now, we're all not, we are a nonprofit. We donate all our funds to uh, two nonprofits, River Valley Counseling in Holyoke and a Forum House, which is a part of Viability, in, uh, uh, there in, in, in uh, Westfield, uh, Forum House. Um, that's it. We, we are all volunteers, and we would like to have some volunteers help, come forward and help us. We need people. <laughs> we need help. You don't need to be Scottish to help out it's, at you the do, Glasgow Lands It's not easy Scottish to corral Festival. 600 pipers and drummers. No. Yeah. We're speaking to Peter Langmore, who is the director of the festival. And you already mentioned uh, 29 pipe bands coming, close to 600 pipers and drummers. Yes. But you're the second largest Scottish festival in New England. Where is the, the, the only one in Massachusetts, we should say, but where is the, where is the largest? What could be larger than this Scottish festival? Actually this at Saturday? Loon Mountain, in, 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 but that's a multi-day event. Uh-huh. I have a feeling, from what I've heard, that we have more pipe bands than Loon Mountain. Uh, <laughs> we do. So I could say we're probably the largest 
Scottish festival, one day Scottish festival in New England. There we go. I, I don't know, but you know, we'll take it. Yeah, yeah, I'll take it. I but, mean, it's it's really huge, and because of its look park, the bands love it. Uh, we have athletic events, and these, you know, the men and women who are huge and throw the caber and the. That that is the thing we were going to definitely ask about because okay. like I don't know if I know what a caber is and I had to remind you that it's caber and not tabor. Not tabor. I thought for some yes. reason it was called a tabor. Yes. But 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 what exactly is the caber toss if if someone hasn't heard or seen it? Well, consider uh, think of a telephone pole. <laughs> and now try to throw it. <laughs> but you, yes. But you have to. It's not just throwing it. You're supposed to flip it. Yeah, that's correct. So uh, the caber toss, it's a long tapered pole. It's 16 to 20 feet long, 80 to 120 pounds. Oh, my word. And the, they, they hold it in their hand. You can't see it, obviously, on the radio. But, they but we hold, can imagine it with you. <laughs> hold it in their hands and, and flip it up. And it's supposed to flip over. And if it's perfect, it lands at 12 o'clock. And so that's how they're. So it's not how far the caber gets tossed. No. It's how perfectly aligned the caber gets flipped. Yes. yes. I thought it was like the javelin, like the super heavy log-like javelin. No, thing. no, no. It, it's more like cup flip. Like you, you've got this giant pole, and then you're just trying to make it make one revolution and fall right right exactly where it started. This isn't a fair question for you, and feel free to pass. Do you have any idea where that why this tradition exists in Scottish people's lives? Yes, I lives? do. Ah, do tell. <laughs> Uh, the uh, Highland uh, Athletic Games were created or they started because the clan chiefs had to get the best and the strongest to protect themselves. Them, You know, the, each clan in, in Scotland, uh, they kind of fought each other. <laughs> um, so the clan chiefs got these athletes or, the, uh, you know, that's how they trained. That's how they trained. And so that each clan would put together their caber tosser, and then whichever yeah, you'd clan have... had the better one would be like, oh, watch out, better watch out for that clan. Well, no, no, but the, they were, the strongest were, were their bodyguards. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, I mean, of course, today there's men and women here uh, come up here, and there are world record holders that come to our festival. That's It's amazing. amazing. <laughs> I mean, you have to see it to believe it. But you do hammer throws, too. Yes, hammer throws, wait for distance. Uh, it's 22-pound hammer and uh, sheaf toss, which is a pitchfork with um, uh, hay bales. Yep. Wait, so weights. Describe this one to me now. <laughs> <laughs> are you ta- are you tossing the whole pitchfork and the hay bale, or no, picking up the, the hay bale and seeing how far you can throw that over a, uh, over a uh, a, ra- a rail? Uh huh. A bar, and, a bar, and that's a distance one, right? How far can I height? Th- height. Height. Okay. Yeah. How that's high can height. I throw the yeah. hay bale? Like you, the you weight s- is for distance. I'm, I'm reading. So weight for distance, that is a weight of twenty-eight to fifty-six pounds. And it's just a weight. Yeah. Well, it's on a chain. They go around and then they let it go. Okay. Cool. Don't want to be in their way. I love this. This is like the Dangerous Games Festival. It is. You're yeah. Throwing pit. Well, not throwing the pitchforks. Throwing telephone poles. Yeah. Throwing hammers. It's like watching the, the lumberjack games at the Cummington Fair. Yes. I'm sure it's very similar to that. It is. We're speaking with Peter Langmore, who is the director of the Glasgowland Scottish Festival, happening this Saturday at Look Park in Florence. Not flooded out. There's been some rumors circulating that the event. Uh, might not be happening because of the flooding that we've had. You were just inspecting the grounds. Everything's fine yeah, there, right? Rain or shine. It's always rain or shine. Uh, <laughs> I, I have to mention the uh, – can I mention the, the pub? Oh, yes, please. please. We love talking <laughs> about that sort of so, thing. So uh, um, we do have a pub 
uh, with Sal Beer and um, New City Brewery. And the second year, we have whiskey tasting. Last year, the whiskey tasting sold out before it was even announced. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Sean Barry from Four Seasons Wine and Liquors, dear friend of the show, who is, uh, is that who's presenting yes, whiskey? Yes, Sean, yeah. And but, he has great taste in whiskey. You know, do not you know, to shamelessly plug, but they do have an excellent whiskey selection at Four Seasons. Do you know Jay Cole, who's the whiskey pirate? I have met Jay, but I don't know him very well. Well, he's the one who's doing it. Excellent. Nice. So he's going to take a tour of Scotland. Through whiskeys, he's an ama- I mean, he's amazing. You know, at this beard down to his. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite? Are you a, a, a I, Scotch I, I, drinker? I can't, not really, but that's two guests we've had that have like. Um, it's okay. They don't want to talk. About it's okay. It. Yeah. yeah, it's okay. It's fine. We can go know. and taste on our own. This yeah. experience is for for the public. Um, can I mention the stage bands we have? Yes, yes, please do, because this is a big draw, I think, for a lot of people. It too. is. Yeah. So uh, very popular. So we have a stage. Uh, we call it, call it the Celtic Pub. And there's a stage, and then it's a 40 by 100 foot tent, which they just put up today. On that stage, we have a band that has been playing with us 17 times. That's Enter the Haggis. <laughs> Probably I'm the sure. most famous Scottish band going in our region, at yes, least, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Well, they started with us at, at, at Stanley Park. Wow, They really cool. didn't, weren't known. Anyway, Enter the Haggis is uh, at 6.30. They're doing a double set time. Uh, uh, and very quickly, who else will be Albanac, joining? Albanac, Sarah the Fiddler, and Screaming Orphans. I love it. That sounds awesome. And they're going to be dancing. Like, there's Irish dancing. There's so, so much. You can learn a reel. I yeah. know one. And <laughs> 550 pipers and drummers yeah. early in the morning at Look Park in Florence. Glasgowlands.org. You're welcome, Scott. Uh, Florence. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Where are your kilt if you have one? I yeah. Have I have a utility kilt, but it doesn't fit me anymore. Peter Langmore from Glasgow Land Scottish Festival, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> thank you very much. Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, we'll be broadcasting live from the fabulous new Greenfield Public Library. We'll talk with library director Ellen Boyer, the children's librarian Ellen Lavoy, teen librarian Francesca Pasilia, and Jeremiah Rood from Borrower's Services. And it's Live Music Friday. Since we can't really make a racket in the library, we've got some incredible and innovative Scottish harp music from the Silk Road Ensemble. Maeve Gilchrist. She's got a show at Antenna Cloud Farm and Gil tomorrow night. And we'll be joined by a very special guest co-host to help inaugurate this brand new bastion of books. No one lets his buddy drive the bus, but we'll let him drive the show with us tomorrow live in the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. We'll see you tomorrow in the Fabulous 413.